My name's Paul, I'm one of the pastors here. We are continuing our series in the book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to the book of Colossians. If you have the Bible on your phone or smart device or, or some other way, if you brought your computer in here with you, whatever, uh, you can use that. But I always think it's best to have a physical copy of the scriptures. That way you can take notes and highlight things and write things down. You can go back later and look at it uh, in the week. But we are going to continue in Colossians chapter 2. Well, to say that we live in some confusing times in our world and our society feels like an understatement. Uh, It's really difficult to kind of navigate, well, how do we know the right thing? How do we say the right thing? How do we avoid Avoid kind of these landmines that seem to be everywhere where if I say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, I just kind of get blown up or, or, or canceled. Uh, a friend of mine was talking about just a conversation they had in their RC, their small group this week, and one of the guys just asked, just, how do we know we're right? I mean, we are saying these things or we hold these positions. Well, how do we even know that what we're saying is right and what they're saying is not right? Well, how do we navigate uh, this really kind of disruptive time in our world. And the great thing about God having us in this letter to the Colossian church is that the Apostle Paul and God is addressing a church uh, who's asking a lot of the same questions. Like, how do we know what's right? We're kind of disrupted by this outside philosophy or these outside kind of heresies and these outside thinking. How do we know what is right? And in the midst of all this disruption, Paul is going to give them really brilliant direction. And in the midst of our kind of chaotic world, and as we try to navigate different things in our own world, we're going to see from the scriptures and from this section that we're in in Colossians chapter 2, clarity, and in the midst of direction, or in the midst of disruption, uh, we're praying for direction. But we need God to really help us with that so we can see clearly from his word, and so we can not just hear it, but actually have it change us and do something with us. Uh, And I believe that that's a supernatural thing that God has to do in us and in our midst. So let me pray and ask God to help us with that this morning. Father, we love you, and God, we just thank you for this moment that you provide for us. We thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you for an opportunity to be led um, in singing and in praise and in worship. God, we thank you that we can freely lift our voices in this place towards that. And God, now as we open your word, um, God, we want to just be really conscious about our posture that we take in this moment. Because there's a posture of pride that says, well, I've heard this before, or what could there possibly be new that I haven't heard already? And God, your word's very clear about that posture. If we take this posture of, well, what could I possibly hear that I haven't heard already? God, that's pride, and your word says that you're opposed to that. But God, you tell us in your word in the book of Isaiah um, that the one that you look at, the one that you hold in esteem, the one that you're close to and near to is the one who is contrite and humble, who, who trembles at your word. And God, we, uh, we want to be that kind of people this morning. I want to be that kind of person. I want to be that kind of preacher this morning. And God, I know I just can't just manufacture that. We can't just make that up. We need your spirit so that we would be a humble people, so that we would tremble at your word this morning, God, so that you would look at us, so that you would hold us in esteem. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you break down just 
pride? Would you break down our arrogance? Would you break down, really, God, all the things that are just in the way of us being close to you in this moment and us being close to you in your words? So Holy Spirit, come and move freely. Move in my heart. Move in our hearts. God, let there be just an undeniable awareness of your presence and your power in this time. Jesus, let us see you. Let us see you for how brilliant you are. And we pray these things in your name and we love you so much. Amen. So what Paul's already done in this letter is he's told this church, this is what I'm agonizing over. This is what I'm fighting for on your behalf. He tells them earlier in verse 2 in the same chapter, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to have your, your hearts knit together with strong ties of love. Um, I want you to understand the mystery of God that's hidden treasure of, of wisdom and knowledge in Christ himself. I want to encourage you. He's, he's trying to inject into this young church courage into the deepest parts of them. And Paul is showing them and teaching them the way that that kind of courage is accessed is it's in Christ, experienced in community that's knit together by love. And he wants this community to have clarity, not ambiguity. He wants them to have clarity that will lead to competency, and competency will lead to courage uh, and confidence, So he wants this church who's kind of being disrupted by this heresy and these other ways of thinking, the same way that we can be disrupted by all the noise and kind of empty philosophies of the world. And there's just a lot of kind of nonsense out there, but it's disruptive. And we need clarity. This church needs clarity. And that clarity leads to a competency. And when that competency will lead to a confidence. My, my kids are f- fairly young, elementary school age kids. Uh, and I'm watching them learn different things. Like I'm watching them kind of learn to play soccer and getting better at that. I'm watching them learn instruments. So if you've ever been to a fifth grade orchestra recital, you pray for competency. It's a, I'm praying that there would be clarity and and competency, uh, and that leads to confidence. And that's what Paul is praying here for this church. He's already given them uh, some theological realities that serve as really strong footing for this church. Uh, he's giving them three things already. Like These are things that you have to know before we can go any further with what he's going to instruct them on. And the, and the three things that he's given them, he's established the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. If you take notes, you can write these things down. These are foundational things that Paul says you need to be established in these things. The, the sufficiency of Christ for salvation, the death and the resurrection of Jesus are the definitive means by which God has reconciled the world back to himself. Two, we can only have forgiveness and fullness in Christ alone, full stop. We can only have forgiveness and fullness in Christ alone. And then lastly, we need no other power except the power of Christ. So Paul's bringing that truth, those realities to the church because that's what they've been wrestling with. And he wants to see them as a competent and confident community rooted in Christ that knows what you need and what you want most has been given to you in in Christ. It's one of the reasons why we gather together as a people because we need to be recalibrated and reoriented around those realities because there's so many things that we just get bombarded with during the week that, that 
well, you're not sufficient in and of yourself. You need to add to it this, or you're, there isn't a power, uh, there is an extra power that you need, and the power is found in this, or it's accessed in this. And so when we come together like this, we are brought together around those realities that Paul is bringing. I'm going to start kind of at the back of this chapter, and we're going to kind of leapfrog there, because I want to show uh, just some of the things that this church is being confronted with that kind of have them disrupted. So go to verse uh, 16 if you're in chapter 2 already, and I'm going to read a kind of a long section here. But this is what Paul is addressing. He says, therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Again, he brings it back to the sufficiency and the centrality of Christ. He says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen they're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. So Paul's really going at these people who are trying to inject this heresy into this church. They've lost connection with the head. Remember Paul said uh, earlier in the, his letter in chapter one, he's just talking about, make sure you stay with the head that is Christ. But they've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So you can read that passage and be like, I know what Paul's talking about. He's talking about religion. He's talking about religion. He's talking about a system that says, don't do this, or you made sure that you do this. He's talking about a system of rules and regulations. And when we see that pop up in our world, we are so quick to identify that. That's a works-based religion. That's a Jesus plus gospel. And we see that, and we point that out, and we call it out, and we say, stay away from that. And that's, that's good. I understand that. But there is a secular version of that that we are not as keen to recognize. There's another type of religion that says you have to earn or achieve or own or purchase or be recognized in a certain way in order to be okay to be fulfilled. There's a, there's a worldly system of thought. There's a worldly system of being and we're so quick to call out these workspace religions, but this other one, we kind of let it slide. We're so quick to point out, well, you're adding to the gospel, but this other one is just the way that the world works. It's just the way that we all operate, and we're okay with chasing those things. We're okay with letting those ideas creep in and worshiping the gods of sex and money and fame or recognition and power so that I can feel good about me. You see, it's the same ladder. It's the same ladder as the workspace religion. We're just okay with leaning it up against this other wall because that's just the way that the world works. 
Even though we know, even though we know that system is still a tyrant, that system is still a cruel dictator that says you're never really okay. That's the problem with religion, that you're never really okay. That's what the Colossian church is disrupted by. We're like, we know Jesus, but they're telling us that we're not okay because we have to follow all these rules and regulations. We have to add to it all these things, so we're not okay. That's why we don't want these kind of like works-based religions or these Jesus plus gospels because that doesn't make me feel okay. But we fall right into the system of the world that's constantly telling us, you're not okay. You're not okay unless you get this amount of likes or you have this amount of stuff or you make this amount of money or you have this amount of relationships or you've had this experience or you've been to this place or your photos look like this. We're, you're not okay. Okay, we're like, you're right, I'm not okay. I better do everything I can to pursue that. We let that slide. But you start telling me I have to be kind to my neighbor? Hey, 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 don't, don't bring the works in here. It's grace alone, man. I don't need those works. And it all gets its power from the same place. There's something that says, well, we're not Okay. You're not okay unless you would buy or achieve or experience or measure up. And we go for it. And we feel less peace and more disturbed. And the Colossians are in this tension. And what the Apostle Paul and what the Scriptures are going to do, they're not going to point us towards what we must do. They're going to point us first towards what has been done. And what Paul's going to say, I want to I fix your eyes on the gaze of what has been done fully and finally in the person of Jesus. Look at verse 4 in Colossians 2. He says this, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Paul's recognizing in both religion and what I would call the irreligion of the world system, they are fine-sounding arguments. There's a reason that people go towards it because they sound fine. If they didn't sound fine, you wouldn't engage in it. But he says, don't be deceived. For though I am absent from you in the body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. The ESV will say to walk in him. I'll talk about that in a, in a, in a second. And what, what Paul is using here, he's, he's borrowing uh, kind of a technical jargon, technical term from Judaism, where he's saying there was a teaching that was passed down from generation to generation to generation. That's how it worked in Judaism. Paul's saying there's a teaching that's been passed down to you, and you have accepted that teaching. I'll talk about that in just a second. He says, see to it, excuse me. Back up a second. Continue to live your lives in him, rooted, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing or abounding with thanks, thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Paul's saying you've accepted the proclamation of Jesus as Lord. You made a confession of faith or confidence or trust in him, and your status has been changed to members of Christ's body. That's who you are. The essential message that the Apostle Paul preaches, if you're not familiar with any of his writings, because it comes up in virtually everything that he writes, is that Jesus Christ 
is God really did live on planet earth and he really did die on the cross and he was truly buried and he really did rise from the dead. And those events have massive spiritual implications for us. Paul will talk about the relationship with God, the relationship with one another and how that gospel or good news message has massive implications. That when he was buried, it was not just his body, but your sin and mine that all the broken things were buried with him. He paid the penalty of our sin. When he rose from the grave, we now have the possibility to live a life outside of the weight of our failure and our shame, and we can be made new through a faith or a trust or a confidence in him. That's the message, that Christ did something for you that changes you. And Paul said, that's what you received. Life with God through the person of Jesus. And he's saying that starts... That starts when you, by God's grace, say yes to Jesus. I know I'm lost. I know I'm broken without Jesus. I can do nothing on my own to be found or put back together. I know I am guilty, but Jesus forgives and makes me clean. Paul says, if you have received that, now walk in that. Which means what Paul is saying is, you are saying yes to Jesus Every day, I choose to say yes to what he calls me to in my life. I am his, he is mine. You receive Jesus as Lord, which means he's Lord over all. He rules over every aspect of your life. When you say that Jesus is Lord, you are saying, I believe and I, my life lines up under that he rules over everything. He knows what is best for my life. And so I receive him as Lord. I walk um, with him as Lord. If, if I call Jesus Lord, he gets my unreserved yes in every aspect of my life. That's how lordship works. I understand that Jesus is Lord he best understands me. He best understands the world and how the world operates. And my only response is yes. And so Paul's saying, if you receive that, now walk in that. Step into that. One of the reasons why I think so many people in the world look at Christianity and find it lacking, it doesn't make sense to them, is because they see us with divided allegiances. They see us gather in spaces like this, in rooms like this, on days like this, and moments like this, and make a proclamation that Jesus is Lord. But then in our walking world, they see us with other lords. They see our allegiance to other lords. Jesus is one of them, but he's not the Lord overall. They look and they say like, well, you're proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, but you're living like your money is your Lord. Or you're living like your political party is your Lord. Or you're living like pleasure is your Lord. Or you're living like success and recognition is your Lord. Or you're living like you fill in the blank is your Lord. I hear what you're saying, but I see what you're doing. And the world looks at that and we're like, that makes no sense. I really don't want any part of that. So what does that life look like? What should that life look like? Well, again, I said in ESV, it's translated walking in him. It's the picture of everywhere you walk, you're walking in Jesus and Jesus is walking in you. I, I, I picture it as if like I'm stepping into the person of Jesus. And so when I walk into relationships, when I walk into environments, when I walk into circumstances, I'm actually walking in them the same way that Jesus would. 
I talk like he would. I think like he would. I treat people like he would. I try to act like he would. He's in you. You are in him, which means that Jesus is not somebody that you take some places and then he, you set him aside when he starts to cramp your style. I wasn't going to use this illustration, but I used it last hour, and it, and it worked remarkably. Uh, this week, I had ordered something online, and it didn't work out, so I needed to take it back, and I took it back in person in a store. And when I bought it online, it was on sale, but when I went to return it at the store, uh, it came, the rent came back at full price. And so I was watching the number kind of come up on the little screen, and she's like, you're getting this much back. And I thought, well, it's probably going to adjust, you know, because I, they should... There should be like some, the internet should tell them. I, this, this is not what I, that's not what I paid for it. Well, she gave me my receipt and it's like a lot more. It's like 200 something dollars more than what, I, than what I paid for it. And so I'm saying I got my receipt and I took a step like this away from the register and God's like, really? <laughs> so your integrity is worth $226? I was like, well, Lord, how do I know this isn't just a blessing from you? Like, <laughs> it could be that. He's like, well, it's not. <clears throat> so I had to walk around, go back into line, walk back to the register, and I'm like, hey, I, I'm, I'm sorry, this is a hassle, but I, I think you just gave me, like, too much money back, and this is what I paid for, and this is what you gave me, and the lady's like, oh, wow, God must really like you. And I was like, well, we were actually fighting about it, but <clears throat> he won, so. But I cannot say, Jesus, you are Lord, unless it makes it really inconvenient for me. Then I'm going to need you to just kind of sit that out. Jesus, I can't say you're Lord and have no bearing on how I conduct myself at the office or in school or how I show up at work. I can't say, Lord, I receive you as my Savior, but you better stay away from my finances or my sex life or how I spend my time or what I look at or what I listen to or how I treat certain people. It doesn't work that way. Paul says, if Jesus is Lord, if you've received that, then you walk in him. You continue to live your life in him. He's with you everywhere you go. It is one thing to give mental assent to the facts about who God is and what he's done in Jesus, that he gave his life and he was raised again. It's a whole other thing to let that truth permeate our whole lives so that it controls everything that we do and say and think I was, I was thinking about it this way, illustrate it this way. So when, when, uh, when a team that you like wins a championship, they have the big parade, you get the shirt, you get the hat, and the, the team, they have won, and you'll say, we won. And I'd say, no, you didn't. They won. But yeah, but I'm with them. I identify with their victory. Their victory is my victory. And we do that with sports teams all the time, but we don't do that with Jesus. We don't identify with his conquering of Satan's sin and death. We don't do that with his lordship over all. We don't identify that. No, I'm with him. He won. He won. We, we'll do that with a team, which is like made up, but we don't do that with him. 
Okay, so Paul gets really practical with this. And I want to give you just three things that Paul says, and, and this is where we're going to spend our time, because there's three things that you do to walk in him if you claim that Jesus is Lord. Um, he says you're rooted, you're built up in him, strengthened, established in the faith, and abounding in thanksgiving. We live in him first by being rooted in him. If you take notes, you can write that down. We're rooted in him. Paul will use this agrarian language with the Colossian church. Again, Colossae was kind of this riverside community. It was an agrarian community. He's already prayed for their faithfulness. In chapter 1, verse 10, he's saying, I'm praying um, that you would live a life worthy of the Lord, please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Paul's already prayed for their faithfulness. He's prayed that God would grow fruitfulness in their life. But now he's preaching to the things that you have to do so you'll see that fruitfulness in your life. Paul recognized that fruit is God's business. But there are certain things that a farmer has to do. If a farmer never tills a soil, if a farmer never throws seed, if a farmer never waters, if a farmer never fertilizes, it doesn't matter. You're not going to see fruit. God is the one who brings forth fruit. The farmer is the one who, there are things that you have to walk in, things that you have to do. And he says, the first thing is to be rooted. He's preaching for them to be rooted in the words of God. It's in the perfect tense. So it means that you are the one who makes the decision to go down deep into the word of God and you let the implications of that work out in your life. I get my roots dug deep into the soil of the message of Jesus. If you want clarity, if you want competency, if you want to grow in the confidence in Jesus so we're not a people who are just blown away and dragged along and, and by every philosophy or, or shaken by every circumstance in your life, if you want to be strong, confident person in Jesus, you need to be rooted in him. Start with the fundamentals of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Where did we come from? What's wrong with us? How is it dealt with in Jesus? Get, the, get solid in the basics of the gospel. Be rooted in the essentials. Let your roots go deep in the essentials of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he will accomplish. And then Paul says, and then be built up. So he switches metaphors here. He says, be rooted like a tree. And now he's saying, be built up like a building. Add strength to the structure of your life so it can withstand the elements of the things in life that try to knock you over. Meaning, add to the roots of your faith knowledge and understanding of that same faith. Paul's saying, if I, if I pour a foundation for a house... I'm going to build on that foundation. If I had a plot of land and you saw me pouring a concrete foundation for a house, and then all of a sudden I started over here and I started building my house, really, Paul, I don't think you understand how construction works. No, 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 I have a foundation. It's great. It's extremely strong. I made sure. It's, it's great. This is a solid foundation. I just want to build over here. Well, that just doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense when you do that with your life. When you claim, I have this foundation of Christ, strong, it's good, it's great, I just want to build over here. I have a foundation of, of Jesus, 
but I want to build my ethics and thoughts about life and vocation and relationship and sexuality and money and parenting and marriage on something else. I want to build my significance and my approval and my recognition on something else other than the strong foundation of Jesus. Well, that makes no sense. Yeah, but that's what I want to do. That's what the world tells me to do. The same place or person that I get rooted in, Paul's saying, is the same person I'm going to build on. So don't look for how to live life in something other than the person that you are meant to build your life upon. If you are rooted in Christ, then get built up and established in him. You see, I, I say this all the time because it's true, and it's what I love about the Bible. And if you've not experienced this about the Bible, I would just say you just haven't read it enough. The Bible is intensely relevant to our day. Yes, written at a different time. Yes, written to a different context. Yes, letter to a church in a place that's not Gilbert, Arizona, but insanely relevant because there is a heresy that has crept into our church that says Jesus is an accessory, that Jesus is simply... Good to have, but you need to add to him other philosophies, other ways of being, other thoughts. A good foundation, but I wouldn't build everything on that foundation. And you know what? You can live like that because a lot of Christians do. I just don't see it in here. And I just don't see it in the person of Jesus. So Paul's saying, be rooted, tied together, built up, in Jesus, not a Jesus of your own making, not a Jesus that you mold and fashion after your own preferences and opinions, the Jesus of the scriptures. Build on him and walk in those ways. And when you start to walk in that way, you'll be strengthened. For a lot of us, we know where true and real spirituality can be found, but a lot of times we just glance at the scriptures and we stare at our screens. We glance at the scriptures, but we stare at our screens. And so we're soaking up anxiety and we're soaking up consumerism. We're soaking up in our idols. We're soaking up in nonsense and empty worldly philosophy. And out of that, we're anemic and anxious and fearful and tired and disgruntled and discouraged. And our trust in Jesus is weak. My son is, um, he's nine. He has probably the worst diet of any human I've ever met. He never eats anything except for a, a slice of pizza sometimes. And he came home, this was a couple months ago, but their school was doing these like fitness test stuff. And he comes to me, he's like, oh, dad, I'm the only kid in my whole school can't do a sit-up. And he said, I think, it, I think it's because my head's too heavy. <laughs> and I was like, I really don't think that's it, buddy. I think... It's because you never eat anything. You hardly ever eat. You're like skin and bones and like you don't eat anything healthy. It'd be like this. It'd be like if you never ate anything, but you came in here on Sunday and I had like a bottle full of milk, like baby's milk, and you're like, man, I am starving. Well, okay, well, I got a little bit of this milk here. Let me give you kind of some of that. And you're like, oh, thanks, I'm dying out there. I haven't eaten all week. The only time I ever eat is when I come in here and you've got that little bottle and you've got just a little bit of milk that you can give to me. That's the only time I eat. I'm gonna be like, that seems really unhealthy. 
In fact, that seems really dangerous. And a lot of us, that's how we treat our relationship with God's word and our relationship with Jesus. We only eat one time a week. And we come in here and we're like, man, I hope the milk is good this week. Some of you are lactose intolerant, so this illustration is really (laughs) rough on you. I hope it's funny. Hope it, hope it, hope it gives me something I can hold to. I hope I can stay awake during it because I'm so tired because I haven't eaten all week. And you wonder why you're spiritually anemic. You wonder why uh, there is no joy, there's no strength, there's no endurance. And what Paul's saying, the same grace that roots me in Jesus, builds me up in Jesus, and when you are built up strong, you can exercise the ways of Jesus, a life of praise and a life of thanksgiving to Jesus. But you gotta be rooted, and you gotta be built up, and it's not just information. It should lead to transformation. There, there, there is something that should come out of your life, Paul is saying. Just like a tree soaks up nutrients out of earth to produce fruit to feed others, we soak up a knowledge of Jesus that produces spiritual fruit and thanksgiving for the good of the world and the fame of Jesus. When the world experiences our lives of abounding in every good work and thanksgiving and praise to Jesus, there is an attractiveness and a winsomeness to the message of hope in Jesus that we carry that the world so desperately needs. How is praise and thanksgiving showing up in your world. And you know the great thing about social media is that it's such a revealer of what you're soaking in. It just comes out of you. And maybe you're not on social media, but trust me, you don't need social media. It just comes out of you. What you are soaking in comes out of you. And what Paul's saying is you should be soaking in the words of God and building up in the words of God so that out of you comes the fruit of God, the spiritual fruit. It'd be... um, like this, this would be a very simple exercise if you want to know how this works this week, and we gotta, we're going to move. We're going quick now. If you just took 1 Corinthians 13, pretty familiar passage. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard this passage. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes that as well, and he starts off by saying, he's like, you know what? If I can speak a certain way and I uh, have all kinds of uh, talents and abilities and gifts, but I don't have love, he said, I'm just noise. I'm, I'm a clanging cymbal and gong and noise. In fact, he gets very dramatic at one point. He said, if I have all this stuff, but I don't have love, he says, I am nothing. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic statement by Paul. And then he goes on to describe what love actually looks like. And he, and he says this. He's, he says, well, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It isn't proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And he says, love never fails. If you just took verse four of chapter 13 and the very first phrase, love is patient, and I'm rooted down in the word of God and I'm built up in that reality and I'm saying, God, grow the fruit of patience in me this week because I'm rooted in that love is patient. Now, if God produced the fruit of patience in your marriage this week, would that transform it? If God produced patience in the relationship between moms and their kids, dads and their kids, would it transform it? If God produced patience in your workplace or in your classroom or on your club sports team or among the parents probably and of the club sports team, 
would it transform it? Rooted in it, strengthened in it, outward fruit of patience. I, going on. What you soak in determines what grows in your life. What you soak in determines what grows in your life. We're going to talk about this next week, but where your mind sits determines your mindset. But what you soak in determines what grows out of your life. And Paul's saying, because there are other philosophies, there's other things that are trying to creep in and trying to destabilize you, and you need to resist that. Don't start with Jesus, the source of your foundation, and try to find fulfillment somewhere else. Let me just kind of read through these verses real quick. Verse In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, see see to it that no one takes you captive through the hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Paul is not speaking out against you taking a philosophy class in college. It's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about these philosophies and these other ways of thinking that say, it's not enough to find your fulfillment in Jesus. It's not enough to have your foundation that you build on in Jesus you got to have these other things. That's what Paul's talking about here. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. You've been made alive in him. And then in verse 11, he starts to talk about circumcision. And, and, he, and circumcision was given to God's people in the Old Testament as a way to identify their covenant relationship with God. And what Paul is saying is like, you have something that's not done with human hands that God has done for you. It's not a human-made thing that's been given to you. It's a God-made thing that has been given to you. And he said, you need that. Why? Because in verse 13, you were dead in your sins. For some of you, this is the whole message, and I wish we could have spent more time, but this is such a large passage. For some of you, the whole reason why you just don't feel okay is because you're not okay. Because you are apart from Christ and the scripture says you're dead. You're dead and you can't do anything about it. And it's not just that you've done bad things or made bad decisions. Sin is not what makes you bad. It makes you dead. But there is a solution for that. Because verse 13, you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sin, having canceling the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He's saying, God has done for you what you could never do. You were dead. God made you alive together with him. How? He canceled a record of debt against you. It, it's, the, it's the picture of, Paul, of literally like a handwritten receipt. Here's all the things. Here's everything you owe me. Here's everything that you've done. And God just doesn't simply say, you know what? It'd be so easy if I just crumpled that up and threw it away. There you go. It's gone. I don't see it. Do you see it? It's not what has to happen. It has to be dealt with. And the payment, the penalty for that is death. Death on the cross. And, and Jesus steps in and, and for God to be just and the justifier, he who made no sin became sin on our behalf. And so we could have his righteousness, his rightness put on us. 
Jesus canceled it, wiped it away, took it away by nailing it to the cross, Paul says. He doesn't just gloss over the sin. He just doesn't say, hey, no worries, no problem. He paid for it in his body and with his blood. And so Paul is coming around and he's saying, remember what has been done for you. Remember the fullness and the foundation that is Jesus and do not buy the seduction of the world or the seduction of other philosophies that say satisfaction is outside of your savior because you you already have everything that you need in him. And so we're gonna end, the band's gonna come, we're gonna close, we're gonna go into a moment of communion. But really the question is, What are you longing for? Are you longing for acceptance? Are you longing for approval? Are you longing for love and purpose and confidence and hope and joy? Are you longing for fulfillment and comfort? Are you longing for life? Because the fundamental longings of the human heart are all found in him. Um, St. Augustine of Hippo was born in Africa, in northern Africa in 354 A.D., and St. Augustine is a theological scholar. He was a, he was a bishop. He wrote um, incredible works for the church. One of the things that he wrote was uh, entitled City of God, and it's a contrast between uh, the kingdom of heaven, the city of God, and, er, and worldly cities, earthly cities. And then he wrote uh, Confessions, which is like a conversation between him and God. And Augustine was born to a mother who loved God, um, but Augustine did not. In fact, he ran from God. Augustine was an atheist. He was a sex addict. He was, Augustine was a complete disaster. And his testimony goes, he was walking through a garden and there was a child who uh, he heard yell out, take up and read, take up and read. And through that and through a prompting of the Holy Spirit, he grabbed the Bible and he read through the book of Romans from start to finish. And by reading the book of Romans, he was confronted by his own sin um, and he was convinced of his need of redemption in Christ. Well, in probably what's his most famous statement in his writing confessions, he says this, he says, great are you, Lord, and exceedingly worthy of praise. Your power is immense and your wisdom beyond reckoning. And so we men who are a due part of your creation long to praise you. We also carry our mortality about with us. We carry the evidence of our sin and with it the proof that you thwart the proud. You arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy. And he ends with this. He says, because you've made us and you've drawn us to yourself And our heart is restless until it rests in you. How do I have clarity? How do I have the competency that I need to navigate this chaotic world? How do I have the confidence that I need? Be rooted. Be built up. Exercising and strengthening your faith so that you overflow with thanksgiving and praise and spiritual fruit. How is all this made possible? It's, it's what we celebrate every week in communion. There's elements near you or on your chairs around you. It's the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul's already talked about it earlier. He's already talked about what has made all of this possible. When you were dead in your sins, 
in the uncircumcision of flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins, having canceling the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against you and condemned you. You're, it's not just that you had a record. It's that your record was hostile against you. And if you have not yet come to the place where you have come to Jesus in repentance and faith, your record still stands against you and it's still hostile against you. The shame is still hostile against you. The guilt is still hostile against you. And the invitation from Jesus is, I have bore that hostility on my own body on my cross. And I offer to you in its place forgiveness and love and mercy and grace. Build your life on me. Build your life on that forgiveness. Build your life on true fulfillment in me. And if you're a Christian and you would say, my, that's where my faith is, that's where my trust is, that's where my confidence is, then you eat and you drink in remembrance and celebration of what he has done for you. And then we always stand and sing because it's the best news ever, right? Eat, drink, and remembrance and celebration of who he is.